Happy Mother's Day and welcome to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. We're a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City, and I'm your host, David Brand. My co-host, Jeff Simmons, is off today, hopefully enjoying his Sunday. I want to wish a very happy Mother's Day to all the moms listening in, especially two in particular. My amazing wife, Katie, who is celebrating her very first Mother's Day today. We have a seven-month-old son named Aiden. Happy Mother's Day, Katie. And a happy Mother's Day to my mom, Joan. Thank you for everything. We have a great CityWatch show today featuring Queen's Chamber of Commerce President Tom Gretsch, who will discuss the profound impact of the coronavirus on local businesses in the city. He says that without serious intervention, half of the restaurants in Queens, the world's borough, the place with the most unique and diverse food offerings in the entire country, will not reopen. After that, we'll hear from Daily News Courts reporter Noah Goldberg, a good friend of mine who's been covering the criminal legal justice system in the jails and reporting on some extreme changes occurring over the past several weeks. We are WBAI, a non-corporate, non-commercial, community and progressive radio station that has been serving the tri-state area for six decades. It's a tough time for news organizations right now, but you can help us continue providing a key community service by making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give to wbaiorg and clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens. You can call our call center at 516-620-3602, again 516-620-3602, and say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of whatever program, or in the name of all programs, but let's be honest, you should say it in the name of City Watch, featuring David Brand, Jeff Simmons, and correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston. You can also text WBAI to 41444, follow the prompts on your smartphone. We appreciate the support. We really do. Act now, and I'll throw in a free digital subscription of my newspaper, The Queen's Daily Eagle. I'm the editor. We're the only daily print paper in the entire borough of Queens, and we can deliver that paper to your inbox every day. If you act now, go to give2wbai.org and become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. That's my pitch. Thank you. Now I'll turn it over to news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston with the latest installment in her great series, New York in Crisis, Coronavirus Diaries. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is Daniela Terry. I live in Washington Heights, and I am the founder of Arthur Avenue Food Tours. We were one of the first businesses affected. We saw things shutting down very early on. We had cancellations coming in very early on. And when people were still speculating that things were going to close, we knew that they were. Uh, At the same time, we lead food tours. We interact with people. We are part of a community of restaurants and food shops. And, you know, everyone needs to eat. At first, we thought we can just hunker down and wait a few weeks It was kind of a slow time of year anyway, but then it slowly came into focus that we were not going to be able to return to doing what we do, sharing food, walking around, you know, handing out cheese plates, having samples, eating with our hands many of the times, certainly for the not the rest of this year. And when would that ever happen again? It's hard to say. It's been heartbreaking because we see so many people that we know completely losing their ability to make money. We 
see so many people in the food industry who are so vulnerable. And then we know so many restaurant owners who live close to the edge, but do the work that they do out of passion, completely having everything taken away from them so quickly. I mean, I think we've imagined all sorts of scenarios where a neighborhood like Little Italy in the Bronx, which is filled with all of these mom and pop businesses, which have been around for over 100 years. And our family business is an extension of a 100-year-old butcher shop on Arthur Avenue as well. And we've you know, always thought about different scenarios where things might go away, whether it's just from lack of clientele or the raising of prices. We never imagined a scenario like this. So the whole thing to watch unfold has been terrifying. We realized that the one thing everybody was doing was cooking, whether they liked it or not. And a lot of people were getting in touch with me to ask for uh, information about who would ship from Arthur Avenue. They still wanted to buy their stuff there. They still wanted to shop locally. They know that the prices are good. So they were happy to spend a little bit of extra money on shipping. And so what we put together was called the Arthur Avenue Cookbook Club. And I think without ever planning it, uh, Arthur Avenue Food Tours will now officially become the Arthur Avenue Cooking School. And what we're doing is sending people recipes five days a week that at the end will be compiled into a cookbook. They're also able to purchase food directly from the Arthur Avenue merchants so we can still maintain our mission to support all of these small family-run businesses. And at the end of the six weeks, they're going to get this book in the mail. It'll, it'll come a few weeks later, but hopefully it's a souvenir, a positive memory from an otherwise difficult time. I think our business is forever changed, and I think the food industry in New York City is forever changed. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to shake out again, but I went to a conference earlier, uh, actually late last year, where there was somebody from a very fancy consulting firm who was saying that cooking was dead and that people just like they used to make their own clothes and now they only do it as a hobby. That's the way cooking would evolve. Well, I think this entire experience has completely turned that prediction uh, on its head. And I think that there will be a cooking renaissance, which will be good in many ways for some food businesses, less so for restaurants. But I think we're all going to have to reevaluate our relationship to food and fall in love with cooking again, which we are happy to help because that's something that we already do and love. Danielle O'Terry is the founder of Arthur Avenue Food Tours. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. Thank you, Celeste. Celeste's New York in Crisis series has been an excellent piece of local reporting on the impact of the coronavirus here in New York. You can listen to the whole series by visiting our website, wbai.org, and by following Celeste on Twitter, at CelesteCatsNYC. I cover Queens, which is home to nearly 2.4 million people and tens of thousands of businesses, including 6,000 restaurants. Queens is known as the most diverse county in the entire country, with several of the most diverse zip codes in the U.S., including... East Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, Richmond Hill, South Ozone Park, and other communities in the borough. But many Queens businesses, especially those restaurants, are under very real threat from the coronavirus economic shutdown. Our first guest, Queens Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Tom Gretsch, joined me to talk about the impact of the crisis on quintessential Queens businesses and how the federal government and local governments can step up to support these firms. Here's that interview which we recorded on Wednesday. Queens Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Tom Gretsch, thanks for joining us on City Watch. My pleasure, David. Happy to be here. 
You said something pretty striking the other day during a conference call with the Queens City Council delegation. You said that more than half of restaurants in Queens may never reopen because of the coronavirus. And I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Why is that the reality right now? So um, myself, like the other chambers of commerce, we kind of all feel like we're the canaries in the coal mine, letting people know and telegraphing the folks and being very blunt about the situation. Um, I know the other four chambers pretty well. We all consider ourselves boots on the ground kind of a people, and we are in the trenches, whether it's out in the street or um, virtually with meetings. But yeah, there's 6,000 restaurants in Queens County, and I said uh, that I had to expect at least 50% to never reopen. In Manhattan, the numbers might even be higher, but in our borough, with lots of mom-and-pop restaurants, uh, many of whom um, um, uh, support and employ undocumented folks, um, there's no aid coming their way. And in fact, many of them weren't even able to apply um, if eligible because of the fact that they uh, don't speak the native language of English. So you're saying the restaurant owners couldn't apply for federal relief because the process was was too complicated or was just in English? Not that it was too cumbersome. I mean, it was it was difficult for a native English speaker. But if you don't speak um, the language, you know, we have 175 languages spoken in Queens County. The chamber supports with our staff about 13 of those languages. So we tried to do what we could to actually help them fill the forms out and get things going. But it was tough because they're they're, they're not native speakers and they were challenged by that. Yes. In, in fact. So what would that mean for communities aside from the crisis for restaurant owners and, and employees, but what would it mean for communities to lose half of our restaurants? I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that because it seems to us, especially in Queens, that the restaurants are the nexus and, the, and, and one of the rungs on the ladder for the American dream. You come here documented or undocumented, that might be a political hot potato, but you come here and chances are you go to work in a place Either you're a messenger or delivery person, but most times you work in a restaurant that's native to your homeland. And you get in there and you start working at the bottom of the rung and you move yourself up the ladder. And maybe in three, four, five years, you save them enough money to open up your own restaurant. And those restaurants become the beacons of hope. And the be- it's, like, it's like the neighborhood water cooler, so to speak. People come there. They come to learn. They come to find out what's going on in their homeland. They find a, come to find out. Um, the latest and greatest in the city and what's going on. And without them, uh, we lose something special, whether it's cultural, the actual staples of food. Um, but um, we're very we're very troubled by that. And the chamber's taken upon ourselves to help rescue as many of those places as possible with resources and a number of things we've done over the last six weeks to help them kind of stay open. So we hear about the Federal CARES Act, multi-trillion dollar uh, relief package that's supposed to help people affected by the coronavirus, help small businesses. Is that aid reaching businesses in Queens? It wasn't up until this week. That's a really good question. So we had a number of um, virtual town halls with the Queens congressional delegation, which I must say has been bending over backwards to help small businesses and partner with the chamber. So the first one was April 6th. Um, we had another follow-up one two weeks later, and the message was real clear. Um, it's not coming our way um, no, for, for a variety of reasons. The aid wasn't coming. I will tell you that there's been a groundswell, I wouldn't call it a tsunami, kind of a wave of, of calls and emails I got from folks saying, Tom, I got the money in the bank. Because in some cases, people were su- submitting applications and getting no response. 
Number two, they were submitting applications and getting uh, an acknowledgement that their application had been received. The third one was um, you've been approved. The last piece of the puzzle, the actual money in the bank was few and far between. But I'm happy to report as of this week, a, a, a decent number, I'm not going to say a majority, but a, a large number of folks have called and texted me and said, thanks for your perseverance, we got the money in the bank. And I, I attribute a lot of that success to the efforts of uh, Congressman Greg Meeks and the entire Queens delegation, including Greg, I'm sorry, including Grace Mang, Nidia Velasquez, Hakeem Jeffries, Carolyn Maloney, Tom Swazi, um, have really joined forces. Um, um, they're obviously all Democrats, but also in a nonpartisan way to make sure it was trickling down to small businesses. I noticed when you just listed the members of Congress and also in some of the correspondence I've received about these virtual uh, town halls with the Queen's congressional delegation, I haven't seen Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez involved in these activities, uh, at least with the Queen's chamber. I'm wondering, have you worked with her at all? We've tried to no avail, but again, uh, we deferred to the uh, to the leader of the delegation, Greg Meeks, for the invitation list. We were happy to have everybody on there. Our door is always open for help and support. Um, you know, at the Queen's Chamber of Commerce, um, some days we're capitalists with a big C, and some days we're capitalists with a small C. But at the end of the day, we're capitalists. I believe we believe uh, in capitalism as the the road to success. Some folks um, in various parties do not believe that, but we truly believe that. But um, for the record, my door is always open and my phone is always available for anybody that wants to help small businesses, no matter their affiliation by party and so on. But at the end of the day, we need people that get small business. Uh, I'm happy to say that folks like Greg Meeks, they get it. We gave the message at, at our second uh, virtual town hall that um, please reach out to your colleagues in D.C. and get it down to the small mom and pops, to the grass, to the grassroots. And, and there were some fits and starts, right? We all read about Harvard getting it, which still has me scratching my head with their endowment. Um, that's, that was embarrassing to me and shameful as an American, uh, and they should be shamed as well. But, but it's, being, it's, being, it's being corrected as we speak. And the other part about it is uh, there's still a lot of money available as we speak, um, and a number of uh, organizations who got it had up until I believe it's May 7th to return the money if they got it and they said, you know what, we really don't want it. We don't want, we don't want to have, um, uh, we don't have the ability to disperse it properly. They can give it back. Uh, and the SBA estimates a pretty large amount of money, um, 75 to $100 billion, maybe going back into the coffers, which is a great thing for small businesses. I just want, I want to go back to the Ocasio-Cortez issue because sure. we had her on, we had her on the show a few weeks ago. Um, and, and I have noticed that, that she hasn't been involved with some of these Queen's Chamber uh, events and conversations. And I wonder, do you think it's more of a, is it philosophical differences with some of the other members? Is it uh, a different approach that she's taking when it comes to supporting small businesses? Uh, and are you inviting her to these events and she's just either not responding or declining the invitation? Yeah, let me just say this. Again, we, we, our door is open to, to anybody that wants to come. I, I would love, especially if she's been a guest on your show, maybe she's listening. Maybe her staffers are listening. Reach out. Um, we are we are a not-for-profit that's nonpartisan. Um, we support our incumbents as, as, they, as they are around. So we're here to help um, every person, place, and thing in Queens County. We also work a lot with our other chambers, 
across the board. So she represents a part of the Bronx. Um, we do a lot of things with our friend Lisa Soren up at the Bronx Chamber of Commerce. At the end of the day, I'm not. There's no. There's no stiff arm from the Queens Chamber of Commerce to anybody or everybody that wants to get involved. So the last thing I'll say about that is, please call us and uh, and, and and join join the effort to get our small businesses of every flavor, variety, and size back on their feet. I want to go back to what the federal government can do to support Queen small businesses. You said until recently the money wasn't arriving, and we had spoken about a week ago, um, maybe a week and a half ago, you said the federal payroll protection program had only benefited a handful of businesses in Queens. And I think you had heard of only single-digit number of businesses, fewer than 10 businesses that had received money through the payroll protection program. Uh, the federal government re replenished the PPP. What has been the situation since we last spoke about a week and a half ago? So you're spot on and you're right. It was in the single digits. I think it was under five. And I had said at the time over the course of about seven to 10 days, I must have been on a dozen video calls. Some of them I hosted and some of them I was a guest at. The one I hosted, I just took the liberty of asking, have any of you on these calls? And there was hundreds and hundreds of small business people on these calls, I'm proud to say. And the ones where I was a guest, I asked permission. May I ask your audience? Have you or anybody you know received money for those of you that had applied for the EIDL, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, or the Triple P, the Payroll Protection Program? And I got one or two, so under five, over the course mm -hmm. of literally thousands of people. And those things, by the way, transcended just Queens County. We have a lot of members who might uh, live and work in Suffolk, um, the other boroughs, even in Westchester, some in New Jersey. This is a federal program. Crickets, for the most part, literally wow. crickets. And so that was very troubling. That message went up to Congress via um, our delegation. Um, the folks at SBS, Greg Bishop, who's a good friend of the chamber and a great leader in the city of Queens, as the city of New York, when it comes to uh, small business services, they got the message. Um, I even think the governor got the message. And when he went down to D.C., I like to think he talked about that when he had his audience with the president, small businesses in general are not getting this. And so a lot of folks had their uh, applications in the queue. Um, and when the, when more money went in there, when, after they ran out for the first batch, when more money went in there, they started getting funded, which was a good thing. So we talked about the federal government, but what can the city do to support small businesses right now? The city council unveiled a, a pretty broad package of, of uh of bills and programs to support people affected by the coronavirus. Does it go far enough for businesses that have been impacted? So let's talk about the support the city's given, and then let's talk about some of these um, some of these uh, bills that were put forth by city council. Um, I think we all know, and I, we have to take the blinders off if we don't have them on already, um, the city and the state are broke, and they will be broke, it looks like, for the next five or 10 years, e even with a large infusion of federal dollars and I don't think the till is going to always be open. I mean, we're going to have tax consequences and funding consequences and debt consequences for probably a generation because of this. But we will bounce back. So I don't want to sound all gloom and doom. But at the end of the day, the city, through small business services, has funded things. But again, this is not like 9-11, where the concentration of truly damaged on-the-spot businesses were down in lower Manhattan. And the vicinity. This is not like Hurricane Sandy, where many of the businesses that were injured were like in the Rockaways and Staten Island and by the shores of Long Island. Those were concentrated in certain areas. And after the power went back on on Sandy and after our American psyche was starting to heal after 9-11, 
um, we were able to bounce back in certain areas. It was almost, quote, business as usual in many pockets. In this case, it's not. I mean, it's remarkable how across the, the, the entire, well, the country, but as far as bringing it down to the city, you know, bowling alleys, movie theaters, nail salons, haircut places, restaurants we've talked about. Every single business has been impacted that because I think the need is so great. Um, there was a city council hearing on Cinco de Mayo. That was a remarkable, remarkable thing. Uh, it was only this, I think it was the second time that city council did a virtual meeting and it was unbelievably well attended by by labor, by business, by not-for-profits, basically saying the city council, it is impossible to even comprehend that you want to make uh, laws and add bills to the equation when people don't know. They know the beginning of this. They kind of know the middle, but they have no clue what's going to happen. I'm talking about business people. Have no clue what's going to happen from the middle to the end. To add things like um, bonuses and, and extra costs to, to, to the workforce, to the business owners, is, is is impossible to even comprehend. Um, other chambers of commerce that we talk to outside of New York scratch their heads when we talk about this. Um, city council needs to find ways, in my humble opinion, to allow businesses to thrive. Most small businesses, in fact, 90% of my members in Queens County have 10 or fewer employees. This legislation is designed for folks, 100 or so on, but it all trickles down to the small guy. If there's a larger size business, if there's a coffee manufacturer in Long Island City that's going to be subject to this, they hire people locally. They buy their goods and services locally. It's all going to affect people. So my advice in general, the city council is to let businesses be businesses, go out into the streets, go knock on the doors like the other chambers do, and ask them what they need to thrive and survive. Please don't add more onerous, um, administratively heavy, uh, that takes the profit out of our small businesses at this time. And we just have a few more few more moments left. So I was hoping you could tell us how fellow New Yorkers can support small businesses right now. So there's a couple things. Uh, so shortly after the pandemic hit, in true fashion, like the week of the 16th of March, we um, we reached out to every one of our members um, in person, by email, but mostly by phone, to say, we're here, what do you need? And so based upon that, we set up a queensbest.org website within like 24 hours. Within the first week or two, we had like 6,000 hits. It lists all restaurants in Queens County that offer takeout. There was a big groundswell, and then... Uh, hits kind of fell off because people stopped, um, uh, businesses stopped offering takeout. They were kind of nervous. They weren't making enough money with the sit-down part of the business. So that ebbed. Now, first part of May, a lot more restaurants, thankfully, are opening up just to um, takeout. Second thing we did was um, we listened to our members. We listened to our people. We're, we are business people at the Queen's Chamber of Commerce. Operation Main Street. We started a program where we allow people, um, and we partnered with an organization uh, called eGifter out in Long Island. No fees for setup, no fees to buy gift cards. At the end of the day, if you get a couple of hundred people in your neighborhood, even 50 people, to go buy a $25 gift card from their local restaurant, it infuses cash into that business right away. You can use it now for takeout of those gift cards. You can use it down the road as an eternal optimist. We believe those restaurants that are available now will remain open. And so again, it's um, it's Operation Main Street. You can buy gift cards through hundreds of Queens restaurants. And it's one of the ways we're trying to infuse um, citizens to get involved and help and help their local businesses. 
Well, Queen's Chamber of Commerce President and CEO, Tom Gretsch, thank you for joining us. David, thank you so much for all you do and getting the word out to your constituents. Uh, it's an honor to know you and a pleasure to work with you. Thank you very much. That was my interview with Queen's Chamber of Commerce President and CEO, Tom Gretsch. We are WBAI, a non-corporate, non-commercial, community and progressive radio station that has been serving the tri-state area for more than 60 years. It's a tough time for news organizations, but you can help us continue providing a key community service by making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can give $10 a month. Hopefully it's a little more. People usually do about $15. Uh, make that contribution and you will become a WBAI buddy. Go to give2wbai.org and click buddies on the upper left corner when the site opens and follow the prompts. You can also call our call center at 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. And say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of whatever program you want. And hint, hint, you should say the name City Watch. That's the program you're listening to right now on WBAI 99.5 FM. We air every Sunday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. and again on Monday mornings at 5 a.m. I'm your host David Brand. My co-host Jeff Simmons is off today and if you were listening earlier you heard the latest installment in a great series called the Coronavirus Diaries by our correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston. So please consider making a contribution. You can also text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your phone. We appreciate the support. We really do and if you act now you're going to get more bang for your buck. I will throw in a free digital subscription of the Queen's Daily Eagle. I'm the editor of the Queen's Eagle, and we are Queen's only daily print newspaper. We print every single weekday. We print a special weekend edition, and you can go to our website, queenseagle.com, to see some of our great coverage. Again, the only daily print newspaper in Queens, and if you become a BAI buddy, you get a free digital subscription of the Queen's Eagle. So talk about synergy and bang for your buck. You become a BAI buddy and an Eagle Amigo all in one fell swoop. So please go to give to WBAI.org. Our next guest is a great reporter and a great friend of mine. He covers Brooklyn courts for the New York Daily News, and his work is focused on the impact of the coronavirus in one of the busiest jurisdictions in the country. Brooklyn, a borough of roughly 2.6 million people, has massive criminal and civil court operations. There's also a federal court, the Eastern District of New York, where El Chapo was on trial a year ago and where R. Kelly is currently appearing by video conference. Noah also covers the Metropolitan Detention Center. It's a federal jail in Brooklyn with a history of major problems. If you recall, last year, last February 2019, there was major heating outages at that jail, and it was the coldest time of the year, and the inmates inside were freezing, and it prompted mass demonstrations outside over there in Sunset Park. Noah and I spoke Thursday about how courts have adjusted to the coronavirus, what's going on inside the federal jails, and how his own work has changed. Here's that interview. Noah Goldberg, Brooklyn courts reporter for the New York Daily News. Welcome to City Watch. Thanks for having me, David. So the Brooklyn courts are some of the busiest courts in the entire country, but how have things changed since the coronavirus? Um, things have changed dramatically. I mean, they basically pretty early on, but arguably not early on enough, depending on who you ask. Um, they shut down everything going on in criminal courts except for uh, essential matters. So basically 
you know, arraignments in criminal court, um, custody issues in family court. Uh, and they basically kicked everyone out of the courts. And now no one's really going except for a couple of essential staff members from the Office of Court Administration, like a couple court clerks and some court officers are there every day handling paperwork. But in the criminal courts, you have prosecutors, judges, and defense attorneys all uh, video conferencing in, in state courts at least. And so the judges, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the defendants are all appearing by video, by Skype. But what happens for reporters or members of the public who want to go watch those proceedings? Reporters or members of the public who want to see proceedings still have to attend in person. There's no way yet in, under the state system to join the video conference because, uh, according to the Office of Court Administration, there's been concern about whether or not people will take screen grabs or photos of the video recordings, uh, which isn't allowed unless a judge permits it. Uh, even in regular court, you can't take a photo uh, unless you have permission from the judge in a courtroom. So that's the concern. So basically, if I want to go see what's happening in court in Brooklyn at arraignments, for example, I have to go there in person. And that hasn't even been uh, an easily an easy thing to do. Uh, I've been kicked out of court in Brooklyn. The Daily News had another reporter who was kicked, who was not allowed into a courthouse in Queens because they're saying the courthouses are closed to the public, which they are. But if you're a reporter, you're still supposed to be allowed in. And if you're a family member of a defendant who's trying to watch arraignments, you're supposed to still be allowed in. And just today we had someone who couldn't get into a courthouse. So what's the process like when you when you actually do get in? And I guess you have to call the Office of Court Administration that oversees the courts to let the court officers know that you belong there. But then like, what's the actual physical process? Because you, you generally have to go through metal detectors. You get really close to people, get really close to court officers. So how are they treating that differently now? Well, it's totally empty. I mean, you know, you're used to going to court and standing in a huge line uh, with everyone else trying to get in. And there are tons of lawyers and judges and clerks and, and court officers milling about in the lobby. And that's not a thing anymore. There, When I've gone to court, there have been like three court officers standing by the metal detectors. You still have to go through the metal detector. A lot of court officers are wearing uh, PPE, not all of them in mm. Brooklyn. You know, maybe half were wearing masks and, and half weren't. But no one was getting that close to me. Um, but the, the court officers are definitely getting close to each other. And yeah. I, I felt for them, but they're essential staff. You wrote what I think was like the definitive story about court proceedings going on, business as usual. Uh, and then you focused on one specific court, one specific judge, and you had photos of a packed courtroom in mid-March. And then just a few days later, that judge had died. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, basically in Brooklyn's Supreme Court civil term, so not the criminal court, uh, in downtown Brooklyn, it's an extremely packed courthouse with hundreds and hundreds of lawyers passing through every day. Um, and back on March 12th was the last calendar day. That's the busiest day of the week for Judge Johnny Lee Baines, who had been a judge in that courthouse for more than a decade. Um, and it was packed. It's always packed. There were maybe 50 attorneys in his courtroom. 
uh, on March 12th. So we had already had confirmed cases in New York, um, probably a lot of cases that hadn't been detected yet. And there had already been case, confirmed cases of coronavirus in the court system, as well as uh, the, the Westchester lawyer who was like patient zero in New York had actually passed through uh, this exact courthouse weeks earlier, uh, which was another story that we wrote. But basically, this courtroom was packed. Some lawyers were uncomfortable about it. They were scared of getting this virus. It was being coming to be seen as a pandemic. And the judge said, you know, we're going to go about business as usual because the Office of Court Administration had not at that point shut things down or limited foot traffic to the courthouse. So what you had was an extremely packed courtroom, probably people transferring the virus to each other. And then two weeks later to the day, uh, Judge Johnny Lee Baines died. And now another judge in that same courthouse died. Uh, the chief administrative judge of that courthouse uh, was hospitalized in the ICU for weeks. He's recovered. Uh, another judge who went through that courthouse a lot but was retired died. So three Brooklyn Supreme Court civil judges died. Two out of the 40 currently serving judges died. I mean, it's just shocking. They must be the other judges and a lot of the other people who've spent time in that courthouse must be getting kind of scared. What are you hearing from attorneys, from other judges, from court officers? Attorneys I spoke to were really freaked out, for sure. Um, they didn't understand why civil matters, which oftentimes are not matters of life and death. You know, often it's a trip and fall lawsuit against the city. It's a car crash lawsuit. Like these aren't things... It's very different from someone who's arrested for a crime in criminal court and is going to be held on Rikers Island throughout this pandemic. Like those are cases that need to be handled as speedily as possible. These are cases, they're civil lawsuits that could be put on hold for a while and no one's going to get hurt. Um, so attorneys were kind of pissed that things were still going on as, as usual mm -hmm. uh, when a pandemic was spreading through the city. And a lot of attorneys told me that. Yeah, I covered the courts in Queens, and I was hearing the same thing from attorneys, but also judges who were saying, like, why are these civil court matters considered so important right now when the coronavirus is just starting to hit and becoming more apparent how devastating it could be? So what was the big moment for you when you realized the impact of the coronavirus and the changes in court? Things started moving really rapidly all of a sudden. There was this one week, it was like around March 12th, around that date, where things started to change. There started to be announcements uh, in the courthouses. They, they put up signs that said, you know, you can't enter the courthouse if you've been in Japan or Iran or South Korea or China in the last 14 days. So you started to notice those things started seeing more people getting Purell. The reporters, I was, I'm based usually in Brooklyn Federal Court, and the reporters really started getting nervous about it. And we were all talking about it all the time. And I remember like each day as I went in, there were fewer and fewer reporters in the courthouse uh, mm. press room. Usually it's four of us at Brooklyn Federal Court. And then it was three, and then it was two. And then one day I showed up and I was all alone in the press room. And on top of that, there's a guy right outside the press room who sells um, newspapers and it's like where you can get snacks and stuff. And he's always there every day. And he's like the loudest guy in the courthouse. And then all of a sudden that day when I was the only reporter there, the, that snack room was barricaded. He didn't <laughs> show. All the newspapers were sitting outside. Yeah. And it was just 
so eerily empty in the courthouse and I was just writing about coronavirus in the press room alone. And that's really when it hit me that things weren't going to stay normal. And and so just to clarify, the other reporters were working from home, right? They weren't sick themselves or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they were working from home. So what's that been like recently? I imagine that when you're going into the courthouse, you're probably still the only reporter. Yeah, sometimes you're the only reporter. Sometimes you're the only non-staff person. It's weird. Um, it's quieter. I mean, just generally reporting in the field has changed. It's not as much of a thing as it was in the past. I'm doing a lot more reporting from home, making a ton of phone calls, sitting at my desk all day. I don't know. Some days it's really nice when it's effective and you get a lot of people on the phone and you get good stories. Other days it's really frustrating and you wish you could just like peek your head into a random courtroom and see what's going on. I definitely miss that. You mentioned how the civil court, uh, the attorneys working in civil court, and I had said some of the judges that I know working in civil court were not happy that some of the, the proceedings that they were handling were still considered essential at first and that they were continuing to have to go to the courtroom or go to the courthouse um, and you compared it to criminal court the, those types of things are more time sensitive uh, when it comes to arraignments or uh, appearances trial dates sentencing but what's going on right now in criminal court because already there were very few trials going on across the city so what is going on when defendants make appearances for for hearings or for conferences how is that being handled well, they've slowly opened it back up. They are not, I, I don't think they're handling it as normal right now via video conference. But I know that in the last few weeks, they've been opening the courts back up to non-essential matters, meaning that uh, defense attorneys uh, and prosecutors, again, can file motions and respond to motions and be seen before a judge. Um, but really what you still have is the bare bones of the system working. It is, I think, mostly still just arraignments. You still you have a couple plea deals going on, uh, especially plea deals that can get people off of Rikers Island where that's possible. Mm. Um, plea deals being done virtually uh, where the defendant is video conferencing in, as well as writs to get people out of prison, so get people out of jail. Um, so are, we, are we going to see trials going fully remote? The general consensus is that you can't do a trial via Zoom. There's just too much going on in, in person that would be lost. Uh, and I, I don't think that judges and attorneys think that defendants' constitutional rights would be protected uh, via Zoom. You had mentioned uh, getting people off of Rikers Island and something I think we've all been reading a lot about the situation at Rikers and how it's become uh, a breeding ground for the coronavirus. But what about federal jails? And there's a federal jail in Brooklyn, there's a federal jail in Manhattan, and there's a federal jail in Queens as well. It's a privately run jail. What are you seeing that's going on inside the federal jails? Well, you don't see anything generally because they have cut off all visits to jails, not just federal, but also at Rikers Island. So no one can really go into these jails. Um, and the federal jail system, I, I would say we're hearing a lot more about Rikers Island and you're hearing about this outbreak at Rikers Island, which is awful. Um, hundreds of inmates testing positive, tons of DOC staff testing positive. That's the Department of Correction? Yes, correction. That's the Department of Correction. At the federal jails, 
it's a lot harder to tell what's going on. According to the Bureau of Prisons, which runs the uh, federal jail system, there are zero people at Brooklyn's uh, federal jail and zero people at Manhattan's federal jail who currently have coronavirus. And so to Um, contrast what the numbers are at Rikers Island, I think the last time I checked was last week, there was 1,200 combined people, uh, including staff members and inmates who had tested positive for COVID-19. And so they're saying at the federal jails, there's not a single person who currently has COVID-19. Incarcerated person. There are a lot, there are a lot of BOP staffers who have tested positive. There's about Mm -hmm. 70 of those between the two federal jails in Brooklyn and Manhattan, which are the two that I've been following. Um, And that's crazy, right? Because when you look uh, system-wide in the nation, Uh, The Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn and the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan uh, rank in like the top five in the nation when it comes to most positive coronavirus cases for staffers, like 30, 40 cases in those jails each. That's a lot of cases among staffers. That's fifth and sixth in the nation. And when you look at all the other top 10 jails with that many staffers testing positive, you see a pretty similar correlation with inmates testing positive, or you see way more inmates testing positive. You see hundreds of incarcerated people testing positive and 50 jail staffers. But then when you look at the list, you'll see like all these jails having hundreds, 50 people testing positive inside the jail incarcerated. And then MCC and MDC in New York, zero. So it's- They must have amazing immune systems, the inmates there. It's either that, (laughs) BOP has done it perfectly and no one's gotten it, or it could be the fact that they've tested very, very few people at these jails. They've only tested a total of 20 or so people um, over the last month or so. Whereas at Rikers Island, the one thing you can give the city credit for is it has tested a lot of people on the island. Uh, So there is a better sense of just how uh, big the outbreak is there. And those two federal jails have received some pretty negative attention in the past year or so. Last year, the jail in Brooklyn was where the heat was out, uh, the coldest period of the year uh, around Super Bowl Sunday. There, there was no heat. It was like 10 degrees outside, and there was some massive protests outside there. And then the Manhattan jail is the jail where Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide, right? Yeah. I mean, these jails have a lot of issues, even if you don't look back more than a year and a couple months. In, in, in Brooklyn, there are the heating issues, the the power going out. They suspended visits last February um, over that. There were the huge protests. And in Manhattan, it's just been a score of issues. There was uh, a loaded gun smuggled in to the building. There was the Jeffrey Epstein suicide. I mean, there's just a host of issues. Um, and on top of all this, you know, when I've spoken to people who have been held at MDC in the last couple months, Uh, they're all saying that there are tons of people who are exhibiting symptoms. Mm. Uh, And when a doctor and a lawyer visited MDC... And that's the jail? Yeah, in Brooklyn. Yeah, MDC in Brooklyn last week, uh, they also found a bunch of inmates who are exhibiting symptoms. So it's just a little hard to believe that there are zero people with coronavirus at the jail, but, you know, who knows? We just have a few moments left, but I want to ask, you sometimes hear people say, well, they committed a crime. They deserve this kind of treatment inside the jail or inside prison. But what do you think of that argument? No one denies, the, the federal government doesn't deny that it is their responsibility to take 
care of the people in their custody. They they are obligated by law to uh, take care of the health of the people that they are responsible for. They got Many of them haven't been convicted, right? At Brooklyn's federal jail and in Manhattan as well, most of the people being held by the Bureau of Prisons are pretrial. Some of them have already been sentenced and are getting moved around and, and going to their final sentenced prison, but uh, the vast majority of the people have not yet even been convicted of a crime. And that's why most of them are applying to get out during uh, this pandemic, trying to get out on bail, uh, citing COVID-19, saying it's not safe in these jails right now, they're petri dishes for the disease, and I should be released uh, pending my trial, pending my plea. You know, even for people who have been accused of really horrendous crimes, it, that's a small minority of the people behind bars, but no one is sentenced to a death sentence. And so when there's a, a, like a lethal illness that's sweeping through jails and prisons, it seems incumbent upon local and state governments to, and the federal government, in the case of the, the jails in Brooklyn and Manhattan, to do something so that people are not dying behind bars. I mean, the first most obvious thing that the federal government could do, maybe can't do, I think they would argue that they can't do it, uh, is just you know a more robust testing regimen so mm. that there is a more transparent understanding of what's going on uh, in the federal jails. But testing has been the issue this whole time, whether we're talking about you know inside or outside of jails. So they say that they don't have enough tests. And so they're only testing people who exhibit the specific symptoms and are in desperate need of the test. Uh, but you're not getting tested if you cough a couple times in MDC. And if you were you know, exposed to someone who had it, that's not enough to get a test there. Well, Noah, how can we find out more about you? How can we follow your work and, and follow you on social media? You can follow me on Twitter, uh, Noah underscore underscore Goldberg, or you can just type my name into Google and look up NY Daily News. Great. Well, Noah Goldberg, Brooklyn Courts reporter for The Daily News. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Deputy. We are WBAI 99.5 FM, a non-corporate, non-commercial, community and progressive radio station that has been serving the tri-state area for six decades. We're in the midst of a spring membership drive right now, so I want to go through my pitch one final time. It's a tough moment for news organizations right now, and WBAI depends on contributions from our listeners to continue bringing you great coverage and interviews. In recent weeks, we here at City Watch have had Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, activist and former Queens DA candidate Tiffany Caban, State Senator Julia Salazar, U.S. Representative Carolyn Maloney, former Council Speaker Christine Quinn, and five candidates for Queensboro President on our show. And that's just our show. There's many other shows doing great work as well. We want to continue bringing you that caliber of reporting and interviews to New York City, so please consider making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give to, the number two, WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org and clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens and you follow the prompts. You can call our call center at 516-620-3602 and say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of whatever program you want, and hopefully that's CityWatch. You can also text WBAI to 41444. Again, 41444, and follow the prompts on the smartphone. WBII appreciates the support, and so do we here at City Watch. 
If you act now, I'll throw in a free digital subscription of my newspaper, The Queen's Daily Eagle. I'm the editor. We're the only daily print paper in the entire borough of Queens. So you can double the bang for your buck here. Become a BAI buddy and an Eagle Amigo with one monthly contribution by visiting give2wbai.org. Speaking of the Queen's Eagle, I wanted to take a moment to talk about some of the reporting I've been doing recently and ask for your help in covering the coronavirus and other aspects of life here in New York City. Over the past few weeks, I've been focusing on preventing the spread of the coronavirus in NYCHA complexes. So if you're a NYCHA tenant listening right now, I'd love to hear from you. My email address is david at queenspublicmedia.com. Again, david at queenspublicmedia.com. What I've been reporting on is how the state and the city have been kind of leaving NYCHA tenants in the lurch right now when it comes to the coronavirus. They have been extremely slow to introduce testing, first of all. There's also been no coordination when it comes to distributing hand sanitizer and personal protective equipment, masks and gloves, to tenants in NYCHA campuses across the city. Last month, Governor Cuomo pledged to supply every single NYCHA tenant with PPE and sanitizer, but instead of distributing it one by one, he dropped off, or the state dropped off, gallon jugs of sanitizer in property managers' offices. The state left it up to the residents' associations to figure out how to distribute the materials. Residents' associations are usually run by older adults and senior citizens. So here's what happened. In complexes across the city, in the South Jamaica houses, in Queensbridge houses, in the Ravenswood houses, in Western Queens, and also in parts of Crown Heights, from what I found in my reporting, older adults, leaders of the tenants' associations are going door-to-door, squirting sanitizer into their neighbor's empty containers. And so they knock on someone's door, person opens the door, presents them with, could be an empty Sprite bottle, uh, an empty soap dispenser, uh, even an old takeout tray from a Chinese food delivery. Now, the tenant association leaders are making an amazing effort to help their neighbors and to spread personal protective equipment and sanitizer to people who really need it. But they're also potentially exposing themselves or others to the coronavirus because not everyone is wearing a mask, not everyone was wearing gloves, people are not necessarily trained to distribute materials in a public health crisis. So it it seems like the city and state need to step step up to do more. It's not an ideal situation right now. So if you're a NYCHA tenant concerned about the lack of outreach by local leaders, concerned about the lack of coordination, or if you haven't got personal protective equipment, or sanitizer that you've been promised by the state or city, please reach out to me. I'd love to hear your story. My email address is david at queenspublicmedia.com. Again, david at queenspublicmedia.com. I've also been reporting on the impact of the coronavirus on people experiencing homelessness. The governor, with the mayor's support, recently closed the subways and kicked homeless people off the trains, but the city and state haven't offered many safe alternatives for where people can stay. Shelters are breeding grounds for the coronavirus, and there is a near-complete lack of affordable housing in New York City and the surrounding region. This isn't new, but this problem is being exacerbated right now by the coronavirus. If you're someone experiencing homelessness, whether a single adult, a family, a group of friends staying together, and you want to share your story and what you're going through, please contact me again. My email address is david at queenspublicmedia.com. I want to thank you for helping WBAI and me continue our reporting and our news coverage here in New York City. And thank you for tuning in today. 
I want to thank my co-host Jeff Simmons and our news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston. I also want to thank our terrific guests, Queens Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Tom Gretsch and Daily News Brooklyn Courts reporter Noah Goldberg. Again, I'd also want to give a special thank you and wish my wife Katie a happy first Mother's Day, and I want to wish my mom Joan a happy Mother's Day too. I'm your host, David Brand, and you have been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org, go to Programs, and then Archives. The show will be up in about 10 minutes. Thanks for joining us today. Stay safe, stay healthy, and wash your hands. Remember, we're all in this together.